Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shivivani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Joseph Kavidar, who is president of the American Telemedicine Association and professor of dermatology at Harvard Medical School. He has been a leading advocate for use of telehealth for decades, and it looks like the moment of further technology has definitely arrived due to the COVID crisis. We'll be asking him what has changed for telehealth in the past several months, and if he thinks its newfound popularity will continue. So Dr. Kavidar, thanks so much for being with us today. Well, thank you for inviting me. Very exciting to be with you. So can you first start by telling us a bit about how you got interested in medicine and specifically dermatology? Oh, gosh. My father would tell me that at age four or five, I told him I wanted to be a doctor. I don't remember that, but it was something in my being from a very early age. In terms of dermatology, I um, first tried primary care. I I grew up in a small town. I thought I was going to be a country doctor, actually. For a variety of reasons, I wasn't attracted to that. So when I went back to uh, try a bunch of different things, dermatology fell in my lap. It turns out I'm a visual person. Turns out um, I love the idea of taking care of all age groups. As people say, it's a window into the soul, et cetera. So a lot of fun and I've I've enjoyed it ever since. I I still see patients a day a week and it's a big part of my life. So I know a lot of people who go into telemedicine uh, have roots in dermatology and pathology for obvious reasons because transferring images has been around for a long time versus say, transferring heart sounds, you know, from, from patient to, uh, to provider. So I'm just curious, like, what exactly got you into telehealth? Was that before you went into dermatology or after? It was after. Uh, the story is that I started my career after residency as a laboratory investigator, primarily. Again, I've always seen patients, but my daytime job, if you will, was working in a lab. And I had a grant early uh, career building grant to do that. And five years into that journey, it was time to write another grant. And I just didn't have the sort of investigative story that would carry that. So I was looking around for things to do. And I had a bunch of different projects. And my department chair said, let's try this thing called teledermatology. I'm not even sure what it is, but I'm going to put you in charge of it. I shrugged my shoulders. And at the time, what that meant was we were testing out a new technology called digital imaging. It was new then. The camera we used was about one megapixel, cost $12,000. We had hard drives that stored 25 megabytes of information. So it was a different world. But during that process of proving out that that technology was diagnostically accurate was when I just sort of had an epiphany that if we separate doctor and patient and do things asynchronously or across distance, we could do a lot more. And I never looked back after that. The other comment I'll make about dermatology and telehealth, it's, I think, interesting is that so much of what we do in dermatology is not just uh, diagnostic, but there's a lot of little procedures and things that those things need to be done in an office. So even in the pandemic, probably 10% of our business could be done effectively by telehealth. Yes, it's a bit of a poster child in one way because it's image focused, but there's a lot of other stuff we have to do in person. One of uh, our recent guests for Raise the Line is um, Dr. Michael Gustavuson, who you may know, he was at Brigham for some time and now runs UMass Medical. And he was telling us about some of the statistics of telemedicine at UMass, where up until March of this year, they had just done a couple of thousand telehealth visits. But then since March, they did 150,000 visits. So two orders of magnitude more in a couple of months. Um, This seems to be a common story, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on 
whether telemedicine is here to stay and what the American Telemedicine Association is doing at this moment. I'm sure it's a very busy time for you all. I mean, there's so many little nuances to, to that question. So one thing I will say is that uh, where I work, uh, Mass General Brigham, in February, I think we did 1,600 total virtual encounters across the system. By early May, it was 60,000 a week. So again, similar to what Michael mentioned to you. And you're right. If I, if I ask New York Presbyterian, if I ask uh, UPMC, if I ask uh, Jefferson in Philadelphia, uh, I kind of get the same answer. But also, and depending on the state and the flux, but in early June, mid-June, we started seeing people back in the office. So I'm now up to four patients an hour in the office, which is a little less than we did before, but it's a, it's a pretty robust in-person schedule. We do a couple hours a week of telehealth in our practice. And across our system now, we're at somewhere around 20 to 30% of ambulatory activity is being done by telehealth. As you know, we're still in a public health emergency, which means everyone's still paying us to do it. Uh, we still have, although we at Mass General Brigham aren't using open technology, open technology is a, still okay to use Skype, FaceTime, a Doximity dialer, et cetera. Uh, and state licensure laws are a little bit lax as well. So we're trying to follow the trends in all three of those areas, reimbursement, uh, HIPAA, and uh, licensure to see where they land. So that's a caveat. But I think if you ask our patients, and this is something I'm very happy about because when you scale something that quickly, things can go wrong. Best I can tell, nothing went wrong. Patients seem to love it. When you do it right, and, and again, one of the things that we'll come back to, I think, is that telehealth isn't magical. It isn't for everything. But if you do it right, you get this magic feeling and juxtaposition of quality, access, and convenience. And everyone knows it, patients love it, doctors feel like they got something done efficiently, that they didn't have to have the person come in, wait in a waiting room, et cetera. We think that's gonna be about 20 or 30% of our ambulatory activity in general, in provider land. It does depend on whether payers still pay us, it depends on a little bit of the, how the HIPAA thing sorts out, it depends on a little bit on state licensure. But best I can tell, that's what it's gonna, be. Now, in terms of ATA, we're, we're working as hard as we can on the advocacy front. One of the, this is a little bit of a detail, so I'll go through it quickly. There's uh, a law on the books that uh, is called the originating site rule. Medicare can only pay for telehealth if the patient is in a health profession shortage area, which is a very, very narrow uh, geographic restriction. Uh, that got lifted with a public health emergency, so Medicare is paying for everything now. But unless Congress changes that, when they lift the PHE, we'll go back to this very arcane system. So we're advocating strongly for that. We're advocating strongly for different providers to be involved and in being able to bill for telehealth, rural uh, clinics and federally qualified health centers, doing a number of things to try to make sure that what we say that the, we, we cement the gains, right? That we, these things, stick in place when, when the emergency is done. So I uh, apologize for a long-winded answer, but uh, those are some of the things on my mind. No, we, we love the details. So, I mean, you've gotten into some of the advocacy work that ATA is doing to, as you said, which I like, cement the gains. I've never heard that yeah. term. 
So what are the other gains that need to be cemented and what, what gains do you think will actually be lost? And then what are the other things that maybe the time has not yet come uh, that have to be done for telemedicine to become even more pervasive? Well, again, great question. So when I say cement the gains, it goes back to what I had said a, a minute ago, which is somewhere between 20 and 30% of outpatient volume probably makes sense to do this way with our current level of technology and in-home diagnostics and things like that. There may be opportunities to extend that, but right now, and it's largely in three, if I had to really break it down into three areas, behavioral health is enormous, right? There's no looking back on behavioral health. Uh, the second one is virtual urgent care, uh, things like conjunctivitis, sore throats, earaches, urinary tract infection symptoms, uh, easily dealt with by this technology for sure. And the third is follow-up care for chronic illness, whether it be everything from high blood pressure to uh, type two diabetes to, in my case, people uh, uh, that are on acne for their acne or on biologic for their psoriasis. Those follow-up visits that are, in my mind, when I tell doctors to think about this, I say something that's fairly transactional. The patient has to come in for X Maybe it's to go over their lab results or check their blood pressure. Those are things we should think about doing uh, by telehealth. So those three buckets are what we want to stay in place. And again, things like post-op wound care. I mean, there are other examples, but things that when we look back on it, we only had patients come in because frankly, that's how we got paid to do our work. And now that that's changed, we should be much more thoughtful and patient-centric around those activities. On the other end, for me, when you're meeting a person the first time, if you can do it in person, I think it's probably better. I, th I don't think we should delude ourselves and think that meeting a first patient over Zoom is ideal. Again, in some cases, if it's a very targeted thing, that's like I said, I need birth control. I'm a healthy young woman. Well, sure, maybe that works. That's fine. But but largely, I think if you're really in a primary care setting or you're going to develop a long-term relationship, it's probably better to, to be in person. And on and on and on. And every specialty has a different list of them. And that's what we're working through now is, okay, now what we've done to be very, again, simple about it is we've created awareness on both the patient and the provider side that we don't need one channel healthcare delivery that we can have a digital channel and an in-person channel. And what we're doing now is we're sorting out what's appropriate for those two channels. And, and uh, we're doing that not just at ATA, we have a role, but every single specialty society, AMA is involved, double AMC, they're all working towards this goal of multi-channel delivery that makes sense. You know, I'm very curious what your ideas are on the role of educating current and future clinicians on how to use telehealth effectively. What have you seen that works really well? Are med school, should med schools and nursing schools be incorporating it? And then secondly, we can go into this after, is what role does education play for patient engagement via telehealth? You can imagine a digital waiting room. Um, so let's first go with what your views are on training providers in telehealth, what things they need to know, and then we can go into the patient aspects. Well, thank you. Uh, one of the things that I'm quite proud to be involved with and spend time on now is that double AMC committee on telehealth. Maybe by Labor Day, I'm guessing there'll be pretty widespread publication of competencies for education for medical students and trainees, residents and fellows in telehealth. I would say we're, we're not boasting that those are 
comprehensive and there's no more need, but it's something we're trying to get in and get people. And as you know, the AAMC is heavily academic medical center. So we think that's a nice fulcrum to, to move that vision forward. The direct answer to your question is absolutely we need to train people to think about this as part of their arrows in their quiver. Because if they don't, they'll just, the answer to the question is come to the office. We have to broaden people's horizons. And ironically, the generation of doctors that we're training now are people who are comfortable breaking up with a loved one by text message, but haven't yet figured out how to incorporate that because we haven't trained them to do it. So that's really important. And it is different. A lot of thought has to go into, do I have the tools and the data I need to make these decisions, whether it's a diagnostic decision or a care plan decision. AAMC is one version. There are a number of others floating around and I'm sure that they will all coalesce. And in the next five years, this will be a big part of both medical student and resident training. And there's even some professions that seem to be emerging, uh, like telehealth coordinator is a role that I'm right. seeing increased uh, engagement on that we had Van Ton Quinlevan, who's the CEO of Futuro Health, whose uh, mission is to, um, I think they want to train 10,000 healthcare professionals in the next couple of years for Kaiser Permanente. So um, apart from training medical professionals, what are your thoughts on scope of practice, which, is all, which was already a big thing um, in addition to interstate practice, but the role of nurses, MAs, PAs, telehealth coordinators in, in this entire ecosystem? This is a really fun topic. I mean, I, I used to say the fundamental architecture of digital systems in delivering any service is that there's a data component that becomes available to people along the chain. So in healthcare, that's everything from your blood pressure to your step count, to your mood, to everything. And it's all there. And if the decisions that we need to make on your behalf involve simply analyzing that data, then not only can a non-physician do it, but maybe software can do it. Maybe artificial intelligence can do it. I'd love, and again, there are many little examples of this. I think, you know, William Gibson, who said uh, the future's here, it's just not evenly distributed. So you see little things like this where we've gone to systems where patients make these decisions for themselves because you can give them the data and say, well, if your blood pressure is X, Y, and Z, take an extra metoprolol, 25 milligrams, and then, you know, we'll check in again next week. We, we can start to, to do those kinds of things. So it's really about the complexity of data needed and then the complexity of cortical function needed to make these decisions. And then for the ones that are very algorithmic in nature, train the patient, have AI. And sure, a high school kid can monitor a dashboard and say, hey, this person, their weight went up five pounds and they say they're short of breath, we better get a doctor involved, right? That, that doesn't have to be a nurse necessarily. So it creates new roles, it creates new opportunities to spread work around. And it's all about, as I said, having that common data corpus in order to use that to make decisions about your care. Going back to patients maybe getting more engaged in their own healthcare, you know, there was that pretty influential JAMA internal medicine study, I think over a year ago, that talked about telehealth visits, I think on Amwell. And it showed that patients presenting with upper respiratory infections were more likely to rate their care with high quality if they got 
a antibiotic prescription, regardless if, if their URI was viral or bacterial in nature. And it was sort of showing that maybe this isn't the best use of um, high value medicine. I'm curious what your thoughts are going back to the question on patient education as a role in telehealth. Is there a digital waiting room when you're waiting to go see your telehealth provider where maybe that could be a, a time for educating the patient uh, so that maybe going into that primary care visit, they aren't demanding you know, antibiotics for a viral infection. What have you seen that's worked uh, or doesn't work for patient education in telehealth? Well, it is an important topic. It's multifaceted. Digital in general, forget healthcare for a minute, but digital in general is about understanding human behavior and guiding human behavior. And of course, retail is the best example of that on, on your mobile device and all those things that app developers now do because they know they're engaging, whether it be notifications or social interactions or gamifications, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So every industry that interacts with you on your mobile device has figured that out. And that's why the darn things are so addictive. In healthcare, we're just waking up to that. And uh, one of the things I wrote uh, a series of blogs. And then when I published my, my book, uh, The Internet of Healthy Things in 2015, had a chapter on this idea of can't, can't we make health addictive? Now, I bring all that up in the context of education because our method of education as providers is to say, if you don't stop eating bacon, you're going to have a heart attack in 10 years. It's just nobody does that anymore. That's the stupidest thing to try to convince someone to change their behavior. So to me, it's the digital platform in general is an enormous opportunity to educate people. And sure, it could be in the waiting room before a virtual visit, but we've just got to wake up and say, we're, it's more about motivating you to do certain things, you know, knowing enough about you to say, oh, by the way, we know that your daughter's going to get married in six months and you have to fit into your suit. So here are some things to do, lose a few pounds because you care about that life event. So very long-winded answer, but that's how I, I think it needs to change. No, it's a, it's a great, great reframing, and I couldn't agree more. Um, so my last question for you is, you know, what advice do you have for current or future healthcare professionals in this day and age? Just think differently about what you do. Be, be a little more expansive. Don't, as I said earlier, uh, whatever the question is, don't say, just send them into the office. Think about the tools you have. Think about the channels you have to deliver high-quality care in a more efficient way. A way that's convenient for the patient and uh, wins on every level. Well, Dr. Kavidar, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you. And with that, I'm Shiv Viglani. Thank you for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>